What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150, tough this smart, can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024, pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024, cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. What makes a Carnival Cruise fun? A picture-perfect beach day at Cozumel, or a tropical adventure to Mayan ruins with snorkel excursion for good measure. A delectable surf and turf at sea, topped off with craft cocktails at Alchemy Bar. Now, get some Z's. You never know what tomorrow will bring. Why? Because no one does fun like Carnival. Carnival. Choose fun. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama. On Monday morning, April 15th, 1912, newsboys across the city stood over their stacks of newspapers and cried out more urgently than usual. Those newsies who sold the New York Times proclaimed, New Liner Titanic Hits an Iceberg. Those who sold the Evening World declared, Disabled ship is under tow after hitting Big Iceberg. In Brooklyn, alarmed residents heard shouts of, Damaged steamship reported sinking, all believed to be safe. By that afternoon, the streets around Bowling Green Park in Lower Manhattan were a swarm with thousands of people flocking to the offices of the White Star Line at 9 Broadway. The newspapers had all gotten their scoops from wire messages sent to a Marconi signal office in Halifax. Employees at the White Star office, however, claimed to have gotten no word from the company. Just a day earlier, ticket sellers were busy booking passage for the Titanic's April 20th return voyage to Southampton. Excited passengers would have boarded the ship at Pier 59 at the Chelsea Piers. Throughout the day, further messages were received with a list of names of those who had been rescued. The wealthiest New Yorkers, with family members among the most celebrated names traveling in the liner's first class, waited anxiously in their Fifth Avenue mansions. Loved ones of those who had traveled second class paced through Battery Park, hoping for a miracle. But those awaiting news of those passengers in third class were met with silence. According to the Brooklyn Daily Eagle, by day's end, quote, the wireless was dumb concerning the fate of the people in steerage. And thus began an agonizing three-day wait and a story which moves from Lower Manhattan to a single dock at Chelsea Piers. Not the Titanic's destined dock at Pier 59, but one just south of there, the home pier of the Cunard Line and the destination of the Carpathia. The Bowery Boys, Episode 408, The Titanic and the Fate of Pier 54. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And yes, today we'll be examining the sinking of the White Star Ocean Liner, the RMS Titanic, which struck an iceberg en route to New York City and sank in the Atlantic Ocean in the early morning hours of April 15th, 1912. Now, we're actually going to start this story 
in a place that's somewhat surprising. It's a fanciful little waterfront development that juts out into the Hudson River near the Meatpacking District. It's a place, a new development, that's called Little Island. Yes, this is one of New York City's newest and possibly weirdest tourist attractions, an artificial 2.4-acre island park placed into the Hudson River at what would be the former Pier 55. It's a beautifully landscaped place with plenty of space for recreation and Mm selfie-taking. Thousands will visit Little Island every day this spring and summer. But as you are walking out over the water to the entrance of Little Island, just take a second and look down over the southern side of the walkway, down into the water, and you will see dozens of wooden posts sticking out of the water. These are the remains of the former Pier 54. Uh, These are the wooden supports that held up the pier. And it was on this pier, on April 18th, 1912, that survivors of the Titanic disembarked and touched land. Now, I'm sure you know many aspects of this story already from the perspective of the ship and its passengers. And if you don't, there are many, many books and documentaries about this very subject. And of course, 25 years ago, in 1998, the James Cameron film Titanic was still playing in hundreds of movie theaters, fresh from winning 11 Academy Awards. To this day, this film has grossed over $2.2 billion, or what it would cost to build 10 actual Titanics today. But today we're going to step back and look at the story of Titanic from the perspective of New York City. We'll be talking about the famous New Yorkers who were passengers, to the experiences of New Yorkers who were anxiously awaiting the news in these horrifying days following the ship sinking. This is a story of the places that figured into the aftermath and the story of really how New York memorialized those who were lost to the tragedy. But in the end, we'll return back to Little Island and to the ghost of Pier 54, the place where this disaster became reality for most people, where survivors were greeted with joy and where many hundreds of people faced the reality that their loved ones were never coming home. So, Greg, how do we even begin such an unconventional show? Sure. Well, let me start with a few statistics, okay? There were a little over 2,200 people aboard the RMS Titanic, of which about 1,300 were passengers. Okay. So that means that there were more than 900 crew members, which should underscore how massive this ship was, which we'll get to in a second. Mm -hmm. But I wanted to first start with some of the passengers. In particular, the ones either with New York connections or those who were immigrating to the United States and were coming through New York for that reason. Okay, and there were three classes in which one could travel on the Titanic. There was first class, second class, and then third class, also called steerage. Mm -hmm. And although these were ticket types with different levels of onboard accommodations, Mm -hmm. it was assumed and reported as though the first-class passengers were the most important. They were the wealthiest and the most famous passengers, 
and most of the coverage focused on them. Even with exhaustive research over the years, there are still many stories about those who rode in steerage that we do not know. And, you know, there were many notable New Yorkers who booked passage here on the Titanic's inaugural voyage. Mm -hmm. The ship uniquely attracted some of the flashiest Americans, in fact, those with lots of money who wanted the prestige of being the first to travel in style. Probably the most prominent of those in first class was Colonel John Jacob Astor IV, the youngest son of William Backhouse Astor and Carolyn Skirmerhorn Astor. A.K.A. THE Mrs. Astor. <laughs> oh, yeah. The Astors were, of course, one of the richest and most well-connected families of the Gilded Age, a family which made most of its money in real estate. In fact, Junior's namesake, the first John Jacob Astor, created the family's wealth by buying up New York real estate in the early 19th century. And so then the Titanic passenger, John Jacob Astor IV, or Jack, Mm -hmm. as they called him, was the great-grandson of the man who built the family wealth. And he would also work in the family real estate business, as most of the Astor men did, and on his own projects, most notably in 1897 with the development of the Astoria Hotel, which was built on the spot of his old family home at 34th Street and 5th Avenue. Which became the Waldorf Astoria when it combined with the hotel next door, Mm -hmm. owned by his cousin and rival, William Waldorf Astor. And this Waldorf Astoria, the one here, 34th and 5th, plays an important role in this story, as you'll see. But there were other representatives of many old families aboard the Titanic. Another was Archibald Gracie IV, named for his colonial-era descendant, a prosperous merchant whose lavish home remains with us to this day. And that would be, of course, Gracie Mansion on the Upper East Side, Mm -hmm. the customary home of the mayor of New York, and currently occupied by Eric Adams. Mm -hmm. There we go, Greg, (laughs) tying the past to the present. That's what we do here. And the modern links to our story don't stop there. There were prominent businessmen on the Titanic, such as Isidore Strauss, who was on board with his wife, Ida. Now, Isidore and his brother, Nathan, Jewish immigrants from Bavaria, worked their way up from the basement of the 14th Street department store owned by Roland Hussey Macy. By 1896, the brothers owned the department store. And then in 1902, they moved the store to Herald Square, where it sits to this day at 34th Street and 6th Avenue. Which is just one block over, just one block west Mm -hmm. from the Waldorf Astoria. And there were artists and entertainers of all types on the ship. Joining these moguls and socialites were painters like Francis David Millet, one of the founders of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and a good friend of Mark Twain, by the way. He even Mm -hmm. painted Twain. Millet was actually traveling around in Europe with his friend, Colonel Archibald Butt, who happened to be the aide to President of the United States, William Howard Taft. These two were, in fact, returning home on the Titanic. And who were some of the, the female passengers? As we now know, there were, there were many more women put on the lifeboats than men, 
And a lot of them would subsequently be described in press reports simply as wives and mothers. Uh, But in fact, many of them had their own careers. For instance, take Dorothy Gibson, who was returning on the Titanic after a six-week vacation with her mother. Gibson was born in Hoboken, a former vaudeville star who parlayed her success into a career in the burgeoning movie business. Back in the days when films were silent very, very short, and played in Nickelodeons. And also back in the day when the center of American filmmaking was New York and New Jersey. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was actually one of the biggest stars to come from the Fort Lee movie industry. So just imagine her rubbing elbows with all of these bankers and moguls playing cards with the boys, Mm -hmm. which in fact she did. And she was joined there by Dr. Alice Leader, an accomplished physician who worked at one point at the Bellevue Mental Institution. And the woman with whom she shared a cabin, Margaret Swift, who studied law at New York University. And then there was the case of a young woman named Margaret Hayes, who lived on the Upper West Side, who was traveling home on the Titanic with two of her friends and her dog, a Pomeranian named Bebe. So these are all New Yorkers. Um, But let's talk for a moment about some of the passengers who were not just crossing, you know, for the sake of travel, but who were making this passage in order to start a new life in America. Mm -hmm. There were over 700 people traveling in steerage, although immigrants could and did travel in the other sections if they could afford to buy the ticket. Yeah, and also, I mean, non-immigrants were also traveling third class in steerage. Yeah, you know, by 1912, it had been decades since those mass waves of immigration began coming to the United States, and competing ocean liners, like those of the White Star Line, provided slightly nicer accommodations for those Below deck, mm-hmm. as they say. However, there were few Americans in third class. You know, it was mostly visitors to the country and immigrants who, in a normal situation, would be transferred to Ellis Island for processing once the ship arrived in New York Harbor. And by the way, they had already undergone health inspections back in England before they could even board because if they failed a health inspection once in the U.S., it was White Star's responsibility to take them back home. And that process would have been in place in this situation. Now, typical of the third-class Voyager's experience was that of Frederick Goodman, an Englishman who was immigrating to the United States to take a job at a power station at Niagara Falls. And so he boarded the Titanic in third class with his entire family, his wife and six children. Well, so the people here in third class were coming from really a wide range of different places. They were coming from Sweden, Russia, Syria, even China. Yes, including a man named Fang Lang, also known as Wing Sung Fong, one of eight Chinese men, sailors, headed for employment in the Caribbean. And, you know, consider how much we know about these prominent names like the Astors, Mm -hmm. right? We know so few details about those in steerage, but what we know about the fate of Fang Lang is really extraordinary, as you'll hear. Well, you've given us an idea of the passenger list, but 
Now we need to be introduced to the magnificent ocean liner itself. We'll go aboard the Titanic right after this. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking, I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Calling all operatives. From now to March 30th, MGM National Harbor invokes your skills to play Covert Cash, a spy-themed kiosk game series where classified missions, hidden rewards, and daily thrills await. Sign up for MGM Rewards to play and unlock up to $25,000 in hidden free play daily and entries into our grand escape car drawing on March 30th. Visit MGMNationalHarbor.com slash Covert Cash to begin your mission. Must be 21. Please play responsibly. For help, visit MDGamblingHelp.org or call 1-800-GAMBLER. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. What do eight bags of concrete mix, a cooler full of 30-pound sea bass, and a 10-inch compound miter saw have in common? They're all things that are easier to load in and out of the bed of the new F-150. Thanks to its new available pro-access tailgate, that's also a swing gate. The new 2024 Ford F-150. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Available starting early 2024. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. Cargo and load capacity limited by weight and weight distribution. By the year 1912, thousands of ships, ocean liners, and other types of vessels had entered the waters of New York Harbor. Mm -hmm. So what was so special about this ship, about the RMS Titanic? Well, the Titanic was different because she was an especially large and luxurious ocean liner. Okay, She was the largest operating ocean liner out there. She was actually the largest moving man-made thing in the world when she went into service um, in 1912. And the Titanic wasn't created just for fun, of course. The Titanic played a part in a sort of ocean liner 
arms race, if you will. Mm, well, this sounds exciting. It sounds very expensive, actually. Oh, it, it was, yes. The competitors here were the top passenger shipping operations in the world that were crossing the North Atlantic at the time. This was a race specifically between a handful of UK and German shipping lines. As I mentioned, there had been many decades of immigration, heavy passenger traffic heading to the United States from both the UK and Germany in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Yes, and the Brits really dominated passenger service throughout the 19th century, when these vessels, by the way, were far smaller. Although by the turn of the century, German companies had become really serious competitors as well, with the Hamburg America line and the Norddeutsche Lloyd line racing to provide the fastest crossing of the Atlantic. In 1907, in the UK, the Cunard line launched the Lusitania, which won the award for fastest crossing of the Atlantic before being eclipsed by another Cunard Ocean liner, the Mauritania. So then how does the Titanic figure into this mess? Well, the Titanic came along a few years later in 1912 and was operated by the other major player here. Okay, not Cunard, but by White Star, the White Star Line, um, which was also British. Now, by the time of our story, White Star and Cunard had been competing for decades. For example, between like 1901 and 1906, White Star had introduced its own luxury ocean liners they called the Big Four, which didn't compete with Cunard on speed, but instead really took it on in terms of size and luxury. First class on these White Star liners was simply fabulous. And even third class, or steerage, was actually quite a bit better on White Star than on other liners. But the Titanic was not one of these big four ocean liners, right? No, the big four were the Celtic, the Cedric, the Baltic, and the Adriatic. Oh, All I Ix. And these vessels would operate for decades, but they they simply weren't fabulous enough to compete with Cunard once the Lusitania and the Mauritania came along. And so, in 1907, a plan was concocted by White Star's director, J. Bruce Ismay, and the shipbuilder, William Peary, who was the director of the Harland & Wolf shipyard in Belfast. They agreed to construct a new fleet of three really stupendous new ocean liners that would be the largest in the world and the most luxurious. And these would be called their Olympic class. And they would consist of the Olympic, the Titanic, and the Britannic. They were all constructed starting with the Olympic in Belfast in uh, late 1908. And actually, the Olympic really got most of the press back in the day. The Titanic would be started in parallel in the shipyard just next to it four months later um, and it would be very similar, you know, to her sister ship there next door, but it was all about the Olympic. And then the construction of the Britannic would begin a few years later in 1911. Oh, how terrific. Where's that ship? The terrific. <laughs> the terrific. <laughs> now, you keep saying how luxurious these were and mm -hmm. enormous, but that means they're also very, very expensive. So where was this money coming from? Who was funding this? Well, first of all, these, these ships made a lot of money because here in the early 20th century, this was pretty much the only way to cross the ocean in an ocean liner. And it wasn't just the first and second class tickets that were bringing in all the cash. Third class tickets were a huge business too. 
These companies needed those steerage passengers. But there was some other big money here, too. Some old New York money, Greg, Hmm. as the White Star Line had been purchased back in 1902 by the International Mercantile Marine Company, which was owned by, drumroll, Mm -hmm. financier J.P. Morgan back in New York. Oh, Mr. Morgan. I've, I've heard of that one, I think. So if Morgan's company bought up the White Star Line, I'm assuming it was part of an attempt to control the entire industry, which is the thing they did back then. <laughs> um, you know, that's how he rolled, right? Yes, he but <laughs> he did he did roll that way, and that he was trying to do that. He wanted nothing less than to control shipping on the North Atlantic. Okay, his International Mercantile Marine Company was a trust, meaning that he wanted to operate White Star in the market. But he also formed agreements um, with his competitors. And together, they all set prices for tickets aboard these ocean liners. Hmm. Okay. So on the backs of immigrants that were saving up for their big trip to America, right? Very admirable business model here. Yeah, that's how it was. And from 1908 on, J.P. Morgan supplied them the cash that was needed to construct these phenomenally expensive vessels. The Titanic was 882 feet long. That's 269 meters. That is longer than two American football fields, if you can imagine that. It's been a while, Tom, since I've been on a football field. So could you give me another (laughs) metric of which to measure this ship, please? Uh, Well, the New York press reported that when it would arrive um, in New York, New Yorkers would see that it was actually longer than four city blocks. Oh, okay. That is is a more frame of reference that I would would know. And and it was said to be taller. They would see that it was taller than the singer building, which oh. was the tallest building um, in the city at the time. Now, that's a deep cut. <laughs> now, so it was tall. Okay. Yes. How many decks? There were 10 decks. And all all three of these liners that they were constructing had 10 decks, eight of which were for passengers. The top deck, the boat deck, had lifeboats, outdoor promenade areas. Then came decks A through G, which all had other names as well, like bridge deck, shelter deck, saloon deck, and so on. And these decks, or levels, were strictly segregated by class. Yes, but the layout was extremely complex, and it sounds really almost overwhelming to behold. Here's a passage from the book The Maiden Voyage by Jeffrey Marcus that describes what it would have been like to board the Titanic in Southampton on April 10th, 1912. A good many passengers who arrived early were engaged in displaying the wonders of the Titanic to the friends who had come to see them off. They passed in through the first-class entrance and passed the purser's office. They went up and down the grand staircase or else used one of the electric lifts. They trooped along corridors and alleyways, They looked into the gymnasium on the boat deck. They sauntered past the line of white-paned lifeboats hanging in the davits. Anachronisms, since the Titanic, as everyone knew, was unsinkable. Some of them paused for a moment to gaze at the great clock, set high up under the glass and wrought iron dome at the head of the grand staircase, before going down to A-deck, where they inspected the reading and writing room, the lounge, the palm court, and the first-class smoking room. Forward of this were staterooms, which also took up most of B and C decks. 
At the back of the B-deck, they admired the restaurant, Louis XVI in design, with its fawn-colored walnut paneling and large bay windows. On the deck outside, it was the Café Parisienne. On C-deck was the well-appointed second-class library, and aft, the third-class smoking room and lounge. On D-deck was the first-class dining saloon, an immense room capable of seating more than 550 people, with recessed bays where families and other parties could dine together in semi-privacy. On G-deck was the squash rackets court, with a gallery for spectators, a swimming bath, and Turkish baths. But if I wanted to leave Southampton on sailing day on April 10th, 1912, and head back to New York, well, I have some logistical questions. Okay. How did you even buy a ticket? Well, you headed to a White Star office to buy a ticket. And I find this interesting, Greg. The Titanic left on its maiden voyage from Southampton. It was a British ship, right? So most passengers had bought tickets over there. However... As you noted, several wealthy Americans and many New Yorkers, like Colonel Astor and and even J.P. Morgan himself, had booked passage on this maiden voyage, right? Meaning that they needed to get to England first on some other ship in order to come back to New York on the Titanic. Excuse me, rewind? Did you just say that J.P. Morgan boarded the Titanic? He never boarded. But he booked a first-class suite. He had helped finance the ocean liner, of course. But at the last minute, Morgan decided to stay in France. And there were many other passengers who made these similar and faded decisions to not board the Titanic. Like Henry Clay Frick and his wife, Adelaide. Mrs. Frick had injured her ankle. And meanwhile, Robert Bacon, the American ambassador to France, was delayed on business. And so his family rebooked on another liner. And George Vanderbilt, the Commodore's grandson and owner of the Biltmore estate, and his wife Edith, had booked passage as well on the Titanic, but changed their plans at the last minute and sailed home on the sister ship, the Olympic. But back to buying a ticket, if you were in New York, you'd also head to the White Star ticket office or... Or to the pier? You would go down to the White Star ticket office, which, as you mentioned at the top of the show, was located at 9 Broadway. Okay, this area of Lower Broadway, just north of Battery Park, was home to several ocean liner and and shipping companies and was referred to as Steamship Row. Well, passenger ships have docked here for centuries, you know, down here, lower mm-hmm. Manhattan, in around the seaport area. So it made sense to have the offices there. It's also why you have the Alexander Hamilton Custom House right across from Bowling Green Park. You could disembark and just head over to pay your duties and tariffs on everything that you bought during your trip. Right, yeah. The Customs House had been located in several spots downtown, but this gorgeous customs building at one battery park opened in 1907. So right, you know, right around the time of our story here. And across Broadway then, from the Customs House, there was the White Star office at 9 Broadway, and next door at number 25 was the Cunard office. Today it's home to Cipriani. And then down at the other end of the block, at number 1 Broadway, was J.P. Morgan's International Mercantile Marine Company. 
Well, they really were all just clumped together here, weren't they? <laughs> they were, yes. And all of these buildings are still standing today. And if you head down to check out number one, Broadway, which houses today a Citibank on the ground floor, walk around and look at the signs that you'll see over the doors um, heading into the bank. You will see signs that are marked first class and cabin class. Still mm. there. It just gives me goosebumps. <laughs> So you would buy tickets down the tip of the island right next to Battery Park. Mm -hmm. But these ocean liners were so enormous by this time that they required new piers to be constructed to accommodate them. Yes, yes, over on the Hudson River. New piers, even like the Lusitania, when it went into operation, could not fit down here. Mm -hmm. It had to dock over on the west side. Um, And then the new Chelsea Piers had opened, this development appears, in 1910 with beautiful facilities that were designed by Warren and Wetmore, hot off their job at Grand Central Terminal. And these piers were really purpose-built to serve these enormous new ocean liners. And so this was the situation that awaited the Titanic's arrival as she pulled out of Southampton on April 10th, 1912. 920 passengers boarded the Titanic in Southampton, many having taken the train down from London. The Titanic then crossed to Cherbourg, France, where it picked up an additional 274 passengers. And then the next morning... Still more passengers boarded at the final stop in Queenstown on the southern coast of Ireland. And from there, the Titanic was headed for Pier 59 in Manhattan. We'll get to the saga of the Titanic and New York City after this. This episode is brought to you by For the Ages, the New York Historical Society's must-listen-to podcast exploring the rich and complex history of the United States. Host David M. Rubenstein engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversations on a wide range of topics, including presidential biography, the nation's founding, and the people who have shaped America. American Inheritance, Slavery in the Revolutionary Era is a two-part conversation with Pulitzer Prize-winning historian Edward J. Larson about how the twin strands of liberty and slavery were joined in the nation's founding and the limits of the founders' conception of freedom. In the first episode, Larson delves into the origins of slavery in America and the role of free and enslaved black people during the Revolutionary War. The second episode explores how legal frameworks around slavery evolved in the New Republic and delves into the role slavery played in the establishment of the first United States government. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Rack your look for spring at Nordstrom Rack and save up to 60% on brands you love. Rag & Bone, Vince, Marc Jacobs, Adidas, Joes, and more. Great brands, great prices every day at Nordstrom Rack. Score new dresses, denim, sandals, designer bags, and sunglasses, plus updates for the family and home. Get your spring on for less, up to 60% less, today at your Nordstrom Rack Store. What will you find? 
What makes the Carnival Cruise fun? That's up to you. Maybe it's a ride on boat, a roller coaster at sea, or a deep tissue massage at the spa. Creole-inspired cuisine at Emerald's Bistro to laid-back bites at Guy's Burger Joint. Excursions that take you from jungle adventures to beach days at Mahogany Bay and sunsets from the top deck. Long story short, no one does fun like Carnival. Carnival, choose fun. Ships Registry, Bahamas, Panama. From the New York Times, Sunday, April 14th, 1912. The White Star Liner Titanic is due to arrive in New York on Wednesday afternoon at the end of her maiden westward passage of the Atlantic. At 11.40 that evening, about 400 miles south of Newfoundland, Canada, the Titanic struck an iceberg, puncturing the starboard side of the bow. The captain and crew had only about two hours to evacuate the ship via lifeboats, with priority given to the women and children. However, many lifeboats were not fully occupied, with many passengers believing it was safer to stay on the sinking ship, expecting some portion would remain afloat. By 2 a.m., all the lifeboats had been released, but there were still over 1,500 people on the Titanic. Within minutes, with the bow filled with water, the stern suddenly arched in the air. The lights gave out, and the sinking ship soon broke in half. Within minutes, both the stern and bow had sunk into the water. Over four hours after the Titanic struck the iceberg, the RMS Carpathia, the only vessel nearby to respond to the sinking ship's SOS calls, began rescuing those in the lifeboats and searched for survivors in the freezing ocean waters. These first wireless messages provided the only information known about the disaster, and newspapers the following morning rushed out the news filled with speculation, printing wildly different interpretations of these messages and even words of disbelief from White Star officials. One official said, We are absolutely satisfied that even if she was in a collision with an iceberg, she is in no danger. She is absolutely unsinkable, and it makes no difference what she hit. It's really hard to know if this was just corporate spin or if they really believe mm-hmm. this. I mean, throughout the construction of the Titanic and her sister ships, they repeatedly called them unsinkable. But it's also hard for us today to imagine the complete lack of information that people re- received in New York, you know, the total silence. There was only really a kind of radio. There was radio telegraphy between ships and a signal station, and they were communicating via Morse code. But telephones were in very limited use, and broadcast radio just didn't exist yet. Thus causing the pandemonium that we described at the very start of our show, as thousands gathered in the streets of Lower Manhattan around the White Star offices at 9 Broadway. So throughout the day, the Carpathia continued sending new messages and started to list off the hundreds and hundreds of people who had survived. A sailor named Alex McComb was on leave in New York during this period and wrote of his experiences. Quote, The scene in front of the steamship office was a tragedy in itself, as the list of those known to have been saved were printed on a large bulletin board, 
you could hear cries of joy and relief from various parts of the throng. When they started the list of those who had not been heard of, cries could be heard everywhere, and women seemed to fill the whole city with their screams. It's heartbreaking to consider the uncertainty and the stress of this situation. There was only one source of information, the Carpathia's messages. You know, there was conflicting news spilling out at different times and in different ways and to different people. Because of some of this early misreporting that most of the passengers had actually been saved and that several ships had come to the rescue, many New Yorkers went about their plans that evening of April 15th. At a charity benefit at the Winter Garden... News of the full loss of life somehow leaked to the audience who promptly panicked. So many people left their seats, you know, so concerned and distraught that the curtain was abruptly dropped, ending the performance. And similar scenes played out at all theaters in Times Square. From the New York Sun, quote, At one theater, two men who discussed the accident within the hearing of others were requested to leave. Practically every theater had, at the request of the managers, two policemen in front of the theater to keep away the newsboys who were crying the disasters, unquote. So the White Star offices began listing the names of the survivors. And by the following day, April 16th, the newspapers ran those lists in their pages without, of course, informing any family members beforehand. At first, the list seemed mostly to be just women and children from first and second class. But, I mean, was this the full list? Was the Carpathian not reporting everybody for some reason? Were there perhaps other vessels who had come to the rescue that weren't being heard from? And notably, almost no names from third class were being listed. So what did that mean? So because of all of this... A fog of uncertainty descended upon New York City and the entire world. And there were many prominent individuals, of course, many famous people on board the Titanic. And it seems that if they had survived, you know, their names might have been mentioned immediately. Mm -hmm. The AP even ran a list on April 16th of the richest and most powerful people on the Titanic under the headline, Wealth represented by passengers will exceed more than $500 million. So among New York's business community, at least, they were the chief concern. And the omission of their names led to some certainty as to who may have perished in the disaster. Friends and relatives of Isidore and Ida Strauss had been keeping vigil at the White Star offices, continually staring at that board for an update. According to the Evening World, April 17th, the absence of Mrs. Strauss's name from among those of the women saved is believed by some of her friends to mean that when the terrible moment came for her to leave her husband to certain death, she chose to stay and die with him. That was, in fact, the case. Ida stayed with her husband, wrapping her fur coat around the shoulders of her maid and putting her on a lifeboat in her place. The reason their fates were known so early is because a merchandise buyer for Macy's department store was aboard the Carpathia and sent a personal message. 
to Percy Strauss, Macy and Company, Herald Square, New York. Every boat watched, father and mother, not on Carpathia. It is remarkable, a few things. Number one, that the Carpathia, which, remember, was a Cunard ocean liner and thus a competitor, was rescuing these Mm -hmm. passengers. But then, number two, that these messengers were coming from the Carpathia, but that the ship's wireless operators refused to take any messages, Um, even from President Taft, who was himself inquiring about his own aide, who had been a passenger. The Carpathia only had one wireless operator, and they only had short-range wireless, meaning that they relied on other ships to relay information to shore. And let's not even get into the macabre reports of false wireless messages, reports picked up by newspapers willing to print every little bit of information. One report from the Associated Press said John Jacob Astor was on the Carpathia in failing health. Everybody focused their hopes upon one vital piece of information, that the Carpathia would be arriving in New York Harbor by the evening of Thursday, April 18th. Then the world would know for sure who had survived the sinking of the Titanic. I now turn our attention back to Little Island, to the Chelsea Piers, to the High Line, and the whole meatpacking district. Picture all of this, right? Imagine Mm -hmm. the energy, the brightness of the place today. But in 1912, this area was industrial in nature. There were factories and warehouses, meatpacking, of course. The bakery of the National Biscuit Company, Nabisco, was just a couple blocks away, actually, from Pier 54. On the cold and rainy evening of April 18th, thousands gathered in the streets surrounding the piers along the waterfront here, many desperately pushing forward as the sky darkened and the few street lamps along the pier illuminated a sea of bowler hats and umbrellas. At last, the Carpathia arrived into New York Harbor towed by the USS Chester. The ship's first stop was not its home Pier 54, but rather Pier 59, the birth of the White Star Line, and the place where the Titanic would have ended its inaugural voyage. Instead, it was here that the Carpathia crew dropped off the Titanic's 13 surviving lifeboats. In the ensuing chaos, pieces of the lifeboats would be broken off as souvenirs, and the remainder sent to a Brooklyn storage facility. To this day, nobody is quite sure what happened to the lifeboats. By this time, a tugboat of reporters was tailing the Carpathia. Many, in fact, had already climbed up to board the ocean liner to assess the situation, exhibiting some truly appalling behavior with one reporter shouting questions at the survivors with a megaphone. Questions like, is Mrs. Astor here? From the shore, most could only make out the ship because of its red lights and the sudden bursts of flashbulbs from the photographers within the tugboat. At last, the Carpathia came to rest at Cunard's Pier 54, and at that moment, all the shouting and cries from the awaiting crowd abruptly stopped. 
But those awaiting news of unconfirmed survivors had to wait a little bit longer, as the original passengers of the Carpathia were allowed to disembark first. But as soon as the first Titanic survivors came forward, the scene became a madhouse, with the most injured passengers taken from the ship on stretchers to a line of waiting ambulances which sped them to St. Vincent's Hospital. Among the first to emerge of her own powers was the silent film actress Dorothy Gibson, who was greeted by her family. They pushed through the throng and left the scene in a taxicab. Less than a month after stepping from the Carpathia, Gibson would star in the silent film Saved from the Titanic, but the experience making it was so traumatic that she would never make another movie again. Vincent Astor, the son of John Jacob Astor IV, was allowed to board the Carpathia, but when crowds saw him, he was only escorting out Madeleine Force, his father's 18-year-old bride. John Jacob Astor IV was dead. And the Astors weren't the only notable family in mourning that day. The prominent businessman Benjamin Guggenheim was not aboard the Carpathia, nor was Washington A. Roebling, whose grandfather John had designed the Brooklyn Bridge and whose uncle Washington and Aunt Emily had built it. The sons of artist Francis Millet had been told their father was alive, and they arrived at Pier 54 with whiskey and a box of cigars for their old man. But their father was not aboard the Carpathia, nor was his friend, Archibald Butt, the aide to President Taft. But there was great relief for the Gracie family. Colonel Archibald Gracie IV had survived, bounding down the deck of the Carpathia to greet his daughter. Gracie's later book on his experiences would be among the most widely read accounts of the Titanic disaster. Most of the women and children in first and second class survived the sinking and were aboard the Carpathia, such as Dr. Alice Leder and her friend Margaret Swift. And then there was Margaret Hayes, the young woman with the Pomeranian, which also survived. She stepped off the Carpathia in the company of two young French boys, Michel and Edmund, whose father had placed them on the lifeboat with Margaret, who spoke French. She ended up being a temporary mother figure for the boys, who stayed with her in her Upper West Side home until their real mother could be found. The press dubbed them the Titanic Orphans, and Margaret's care of the two boys made her into an international heroine. Few who rode in third class, however, were aboard the Carpathia that evening. Only 172 of 709 third-class passengers survived the disaster. Frederick Goodman, the man who was aboard the Titanic for a job in Niagara Falls, he and his entire family perished aboard the ship with hundreds of others below deck. And then there was the case of Fang Lang, one of six Chinese men who survived the disaster. There were no welcome parties on land for them. The press, in fact, labeled him and the other Chinese men as stowaways and accused them of stealing space on the lifeboats from more respectable parties. And because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, the racist immigration law which prohibited Chinese immigration into the country, Lang and his other men were given no time to recover. They were shipped off to Cuba just two days later. 
But Fang Lang's survival story is unique, for he survived the frozen waters by clinging to a door and was finally pulled up into a lifeboat, the final person rescued of the over 700 survivors of the sinking of the RMS Titanic. And this scene, these reunions, the shock, this all took place on the spot of today's little island. But of course, it goes far beyond here. I mean, the the story and its effects would touch hundreds, more than a thousand families, really, as survivors reunited with their families and reacclimated into the world. And there are sites, you know, today still around the meatpacking district today that played a role on that day, such as the Jane Hotel, back when it was a hotel for sailors, which housed many survivors of the Titanic at this time, as did the Chelsea Hotel, which wasn't too far away on 23rd Street. But in those days, following the arrival of the Carpathia, people's attention now turned to the Waldorf Astoria. And not just because one of the men who founded the hotel had died on the Titanic, For it was here that a U.S. Senate special subcommittee met to investigate the tragedy. Dozens of witnesses were interviewed here over the course of 18 days, with the most attention turned to the testimony of J. Bruce Ismay, the managing director of the White Star Line, who survived the Titanic's sinking. Although he would eventually be cleared of blame, Ismay's name was forever besmirched. I would just like to underscore, Greg, the fact that these investigations were taking place at the Waldorf Astoria, which had been built by Colonel John Jacob Astor IV, and who, as you said, had perished on the Titanic. And when that Senate committee then left town, that was really only the beginning of the next chapter of this story, because New York and really the world was left to deal with this tragedy. And New Yorkers you know, could not turn away from this disaster. In fact, they went about memorializing it in various places throughout the city. The Siemens Church Institute, um, which is an aid organization that dates back to the 1830s, opened a new 12-story building at 25 South Street uh, that contained more than 500 beds in its dormitories. And on the one-year anniversary of the sinking of the Titanic, the Institute dedicated a giant lighthouse that topped the building, and it served as a memorial to the Titanic. And the Siemens Church Institute, like you know many other groups, had actually been involved immediately the day of the Carpathia's arrival with relief efforts. As the Carpathia pulled into Pier 54, the Institute was there with assistance for crew members who had been rescued. But this lighthouse memorial would remain the most prominent memorial in lower Manhattan for decades. And I wrote an article about these various Titanic memorials for our website just a couple years ago, and we'll link to that in our show notes. Mm -hmm. But this lighthouse memorial contained a ball that lowered every day at noon to help sailors in the region set their clocks. Very much like the ball drop that had started a few years before in Times Square. 
Another interesting memorial was a sculpture that was actually intended for Washington, D.C., but was produced in the Greenwich Village studios of Gertrude Vanderbilt Whitney, a gorgeous, triumphant statue of a nude man with outstretched arms standing atop a pedestal. And you point out in the article that this pose is eerily similar to to the pose that was struck by Kate Winslet's character um, in the front of the ship in the James Cameron film from 1997. And knowing the research he put into that film, it was very possibly an homage. Mm. The year after the disaster, 1913, a competition was also held to design a memorial for Isidore and Ida Strauss of Macy's fame, um, who had perished. And the winning sculpture by Henry Augustus Lukeman was dedicated three years after the sinking on April 15th, 1915, and is situated in Strauss Park, a new park that was dedicated at 106th Street and Broadway. And actually, it's a very beautiful sculpture and sort of a relaxing spot. It's a nice park. I like it, yeah. But let's head back down to the Siemens Church Institute building on South Street. In the 1950s, this building was sold, and the lighthouse memorial that topped it would later be handed over to the newly formed South Street Seaport Museum in 1968. And then a few years later, in 1976, the lighthouse was placed in its present location at Fulton and Water Streets, right at Pearl Street. And well worth a visit today. You know, we have sung the praises of the seaport in, in a few recent shows. And so, the Seaport <laughs> Museum. Yes, exactly. But there are actually several other Titanic-related memorials and spots around town. My personal favorite is the Wireless Operators Memorial in Battery Park, which was dedicated in 1915 to the wireless operator heroes who lost their lives working aboard the Titanic and other ships. Yes, and it contains the names of telegraph operators who lost their lives, including its very first name, Jack Phillips, who was the senior wireless operator aboard the Titanic. But to bring it back to where we started the story, Mm -hmm. the most significant vestige of this moment in time is rested up along the Hudson River. And those are piers 59 and 54. And Tragedy would strike up here again just three years after the Titanic, in 1915, when the Lusitania pulled off from Cunard's Pier 54 en route to Southampton. Days later, on May 7th, the Lusitania was struck by a German torpedo and sank, resulting in the death of nearly 1,200 people. This is an event that really bolstered America's views against Germany at the time. And according to many, really marked a turning point in America's position on neutrality while the Great War was being fought in Europe. And as if that wasn't enough, on May 6, 1932, the entire Pier 54 actually caught fire. And despite 700 firemen fighting from both land and water, Pier 54 was completely destroyed. It would be rebuilt quite quickly because Cunard needed the pier. And this newly rebuilt pier would remain in use for years, during which time a lot of stuff was happening in the world of passenger ocean liner travel. (laughs) Yeah, uh, a lot of changes. In fact, the old rivals, White Star and Cunard, merged in 1934. 
and then, you know, an even larger terminal would open up the river around Hell's Kitchen. But by the 1960s, ocean liners were competing, you know, with air travel. So the, the whole industry really changed. It became less about crossing the ocean to a destination, but instead the trip became the event itself, right? This mm-hmm. was the birth of the modern cruise industry. And meanwhile, down at old Pier 54? Well, the structures on it, the buildings were eventually removed, but it just kind of sat there, right? A long, abandoned concrete pier with some of the old iron framework left standing up front. Up the harbor, the old White Star, Pier 59, would be redeveloped into the new Chelsea Pier's, you know, recreational development in the 1990s. But Cunard's old Pier 54 here would just sit and rust, which is not to say that it wasn't without life. It was actually central to LGBTQ life in New York in the 1970s and 80s, as were other piers here in the Chelsea area. Yeah, and all along the West Side, actually. These were considered safe spaces, community spaces for those who didn't feel welcome or safe in other parts of the city. And would even have, like, events, right? Pride events were held here. Oh, Dances. Tom, Tom, let me tell you about my Pier 54 story, right? (laughs) Okay, so this is where... I attended Wigstock. Yes. Okay, so Wigstock was an annual drag event that had been started in the 1980s in the East Village by drag legend Lady Bunny and many other luminaries. It moved in the 1990s to Pier 54 because the Giuliani administration forced it out of Tompkins Square Park. And, you know, so I... Went to a few of these, probably all of them that were here. You know, one in particular, there are very few subjects on our show where I can say that I once dressed in drag while on it. <laughs> so the Pier 54 at Wigstock, you know, we were all having a great time in the 1990s. Oh, God, I miss those days. You were bewigged, though. <laughs> I was on, wigged, yeah. On, on, on Pier 54. Really coming full circle on this story, Greg. I I mean, I used to ride my bike over there and take, you know, like gritty photos, black and white photos, and also just kind of hang out. It was an amazing space. The pier was severely damaged by Superstorm Sandy in 2012. um, And so the future looked kind of bleak for the space. But the following year, in 2013, in order to sort of reimagine this entire space, Business moguls and philanthropists Barry Diller and Diane von Furstenberg helped fund a really ambitious project to redevelop the pier into a new kind of outdoor space, one that would create a, quote, immersive experience with nature and art. And that immersive experience would be Little Island, uh, which opened in May of 2021. And a good time for a place like Little Island, I must say. It's, yeah. it's really amazing. It's kind of hard to describe. It's it's like a park, but it's built inside pods, and there it's floating on the river. <laughs> Those would be the 132 pot-shaped structures, Greg, to be specific. Okay. They're referred to as tulips. They kind of look like high heels a little oh. bit, like, like stilettos. Well, there's Diane's touch. <laughs> It includes various performance and recreational spaces, and and it's just a lot of fun, right? And there's also a lot of room to sit and to stare across the river or back at the shoreline and contemplate, even for a moment, the dramatic history that's taken place on that very spot. 
Visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, for images related to this week, including some pictures, by the way, from a trip that I took last year to the Titanic Museum. Now, where is the Titanic Museum, you might ask? The one that I went to, there might be a few. The one I went to is in Branson, Missouri. Okay, like so. You love Branson. <laughs> you love Branson. Grab me some time and let, and let me share my love of Branson. But it's it's wild that it exists in Branson. But it's it's a place with many artifacts related to the ship, and in fact related to Isidore and Ida Strauss um, objects that they have there. So I have some pictures of that. Yes, and there is also a Titanic exhibit currently open in Manhattan. It's at Sixth Avenue and Fourteenth Street. Dare I say, Greg, on the very spot of Macy's before they moved up to Herald Square. Hmm. That seems coincidental. I don't even know if anybody knows that um, who's connected to this. But that is called Titanic the Exhibition. Um, I found it fascinating. I went last week. It tells the entire story of the Titanic and includes various artifacts from the Titanic as well as other White Star ocean liners. And in a very hard and extremely awkward pivot here, uh, join me in Coney Island on April 28th, 2023, where I will be one of the judges for the Miss Subway's pageant. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what this, Tom? Yeah, that's right. The historic pageant of old New York has been revived for a modern world and I'll be a judge. So come out, soak up the fun and the magic and the Coney Island history. You know, make an early evening of it. But But will you be wearing a wig? I will not be wearing a wig, but I may be wearing some other kind of festive garment. I don't know. Anyway, details are on our website. That is the Ms. Subway's pageant at Coney Island, USA, April 28th, 2023. Did you know that listeners who support the Bowery Boys podcast on Patreon.com slash Bowery Boys at the Gilded Age level and above get all new Bowery Boys episodes ad-free? And they also get shows early, depending on how we're doing with (laughs) the editing. Well, we remain an independently produced podcast. So it is literally, it's Tom and me and a couple other folks doing this. And so your support is really essential in keeping our show running. You can find out more information at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. And we want you to join us in the streets as well on an upcoming Bowery Boys Walks. We've got walking tours that will take you through the merchant's house, led by the gilded gentleman himself, Carl Raymond. Uh, We've got tours of Central Park in Bloom, Gilded Age Strolls Up Fifth Avenue, a new Harlem tour we're very excited about, and so many others. Head over to BoweryBoysWalks.com to join those public tours or book a private tour for your family or company. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Introducing Celebration Key, your key to paradise. Unlock Carnival's all-new exclusive destination at Grand Bahama, where you can dive into clear lagoons, try all the water sports, or unwind on a mile-long pristine beach with breathtaking sunset views. This vacation paradise has it all. Celebration Key, welcoming guests in summer 2025. Carnival, choose fun. Copyright 2024 Carnival Corporation, all rights reserved. Ships Registry, the Bahamas and Panama.